Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. And we're back. The full Hack Podcast is with you for 2024. We had the summer podcast and that was great. Lots of interviews, different stories. But now the full Hack Show podcast is back for the rest of the year. And we're looking forward to it. And I've got to tell you, we've got a special guest for the first proper hack of the year, and that's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He's going to jump on and talk about cost of living, these controversial tax changes that he wants to make that have got a lot of young people cheering, really happy for him, others slamming him, calling him a liar. So we'll unpack that a little bit. Later, we're also explaining the latest on Gaza, and we're going to look into that ruling from the International Court of Justice. You might have heard about that. What does it mean? Will it change anything? So we're chockers today. This podcast is packed, but it is good to be back. Let's get into it. Hack. Forget everything you know about stage three tax cuts because it's all about to change. On Triple J. Yeah, how much do you talk to your mates about tax? Maybe a bit more this week than you did a year ago. And that's because everyone's going on about the stage three tax cuts. You would have been hearing a bit about them, even if just in the news headlines. We've actually got a big explainer on Hacks Instagram. So if you're confused, you can go check it out there. But basically, it's a tax cut plan for the richest Australians that was passed by the Morrison government. And then Anthony Albanese went to the election promising to keep them in place, not to change anything. But now the PM's kicked off this year saying the government wants to change the plan to give more money back to low and middle income earners. In a minute, Anthony Albanese is going to join us to explain why. But first, here's Shalala Madora with an update. On behalf of Tennis Australia, I'd like to welcome Victoria... The PM was at the Australian Open men's final last night and the crowd wasn't exactly happy to see him. The Australian Prime Minister, the Honourable Anthony Albanese. The Deputy Victorian Premier, the Honourable Ben Carroll. Heckling politicians is a major sporting event itself in Australia. But look, with last-minute tickets to the tennis final setting you back at least two grand, it's possible that some of the high-income hecklers had their bank accounts firmly in mind. Because proposed tax changes have left some Aussies who thought they'd pocket a bigger tax cut than they'll end up with pretty mad. A quick refresher. The Stage 3 tax cuts were originally proposed by the Morrison government and Anthony Albanese said he'd deliver them in full if he became Prime Minister at the 2022 federal election. But last week, the government announced some pretty big changes to the original plan. The government's changes will redistribute a portion of the cuts from Australia's highest earners to low and middle income earners. Under the tax revamp, the government's lowering the proportion of tax that people earning 45 grand or less will pay and reinstating the 37% tax bracket for people earning over 135 grand. It means a tax cut for every taxpaying worker and it will be better for middle Australia, better for cost of living pressures, better for women and workforce participation. The new measures are due to come in on July the 1st. But they have to pass the Senate first. The easiest way through the Senate is for the opposition to back these in and back in bigger tax cuts to millions more Australians. Opposition leader Peter Dutton says the changes amount to a broken promise. Well, I think it's just a major break of trust. It's a betrayal. uh, And the Prime Minister promised this on over 100 occasions. Despite that, the coalition hasn't committed to blocking the changes. Uh, We'll do the figures uh, as uh, we're doing at the moment and we'll make a decision and an announcement uh, in relation to 
our position. The government can get the changes through the Senate without the coalition, but it'll need votes from the Greens and a number of crossbenchers, that is, smaller parties or independents. As this now works its way through the parliament, we'll be asking, is this really the best that Labor can do? Greens leader Adam Bant wants to see more for lower income people and flagged potential amendments to the bill. Though he stopped short of saying the Greens wouldn't support it when it comes to the crunch. What is Labor's case for delivering a $4,500 a year tax cut to the top end while still asking everyone else to be satisfied with $15 a week? Tassie Senator Jackie Lambie wouldn't mind seeing a bit more for low-income people too, but she's supporting the bill regardless. I'd absolutely be supporting them. I actually would have went harder on those people with money. I don't mind not getting a tax cut myself. I'm still going to get... What is it, four or $5,000? Basically, I don't need a tax cut. I can afford my groceries. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Maduro with that update on the Stage 3 tax cuts, the government's proposal to change it. Hearing from you on the text line, someone says tax changes sound like a huge win for most of us young people. Not many young people are earning over $150,000. But then Justin from Canberra, maybe one of those who is earning a bit more, says where is our cost of living relief? So different opinions coming through the text line. We can put some of those opinions, thoughts to our first guest on Hack for 2024. It's the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese. Prime Minister, welcome back to Hack. Uh, Good afternoon, Dave. I'm very proud to be your first guest for the year. It's always good to start off with a a big name talent like yourself. I want to ask, like on this uh, tax proposal that you've put forward, do you think that the plan changes that you've outlined are actually enough to help young Australians especially who have been devastated by cost of living over the past couple of years? Well, what we've done here is used the same amount, basically, revenue that was anticipated under the former government's stage three cuts and make sure that every Australian gets a tax break. Essentially, all 13.6 million taxpayers, not just some, and that will make an enormous difference by making sure that everyone who works and pays tax will be better off this year. Now, of those, when you break it down, 98% of taxpayers aged 18 to 24 will get a bigger tax cut under these changes, an average of uh, over $1,000. 94% of taxpayers aged 25 to 29 will get a bigger tax cut, and 87% of taxpayers aged between 30 to 44 will get a bigger tax cut. So I think this is a practical response to the fact that so many people who are low and middle income earners have borne the brunt of having to deal with the inflation uh, that has impacted on the economy and impacted on the cost of living. Okay, but isn't there other stuff that we could be seeing that could make a real difference right now that should be a priority, whether that's support for taxpayer services like healthcare, dental, that people are really struggling with so they don't have to wait until tax time? Well, we're doing all of that. We've had cheaper medicines. The listeners are saying it's not enough. Well, which is why we're then presenting this next proposal. We've got cheaper medicines that cost $250 million to the budget. We've had the tripling of the bulk billing incentive on Medicare. We've had meaningful energy bill relief that's made a significant difference. We've had 300,000 fee-free TAFE places were uh, put in place last year 
We've increased the maximum rate of Commonwealth rental assistance by 15%. This is the largest increase in 30 years. Yeah. And last year in the budget, we had increases to working age and student payments, including job seeker, youth allowance, ab study, and we study. We have covered all of those pretty substantially on hack over the past year. But I guess a, a lot of our listeners are saying still we're really struggling. We we can't get by. I mean, as you know, there is a mixed reaction to this, Prime Minister. Some comments from the hack audience, one person saying they think that this is an election promise that's okay to break. They fully back you on this. But then we've got someone else saying the harder you work, the less you get. Some people accusing your government of taxing ambition. Do you think it's fair that some of the higher income earners, and you mentioned that, you know, it's a very small proportion of young people in Australia, but do you think it's fair that some of those higher income earners who are not all bankers and property moguls, they might be a young FIFO worker, a tradie, they're trying to set up their lives and maybe they'd counted on a bigger tax break and voted for you because you'd promised it. Is it fair enough that they're angry with you about this? Well, they're going to get a tax cut. Uh, people on the highest rate, uh, which will increase by $10,000 uh, up to $190,000. But we'll it's not as much about... as they'd thought. That's right. And it's not as much for politicians like me either. Uh, but it's the right thing to do. You can't just add more money in because what that would do is add to inflation. So we had to come up with a plan that made a difference whilst not putting pressure on inflation. That was the key because if you put pressure on inflation, which we've been, is heading in the right direction, that's been the big priority. That's been something that's impacted, but it's impacted as Treasury analysis says, particularly on low and middle income earners. So this is a fairer package, but it also does reward hard work. And the context here as well, of course, in terms of cost of living is ins as well as outs. And in terms of ins, people's wages, uh, what we have seen is for the last two quarters, for the first time in a long while, real wages increasing. We supported uh, for two goes in a row an increase in the minimum wage. And we've done in areas like aged care, a 15% wage increase. So we want people to earn more and we want them to keep more of what they earn. I mean, the thing that some Australians are struggling with, though, is not knowing whether there are going to be other commitments or promises you've made that you might change your mind on. You're saying the situation's changed, but cost of living was a massive issue during the election campaign. Like, it has got worse. It was still a hugely important issue during the election campaign. You were asked many times, you said, I've always been a man of my word. I believe that when you go to an election, you make commitments, you should stick to them. So what is the line then? When is it okay to break a promise? The first interest rate increase occurred during the election campaign. And what has occurred since then, and and this package is targeted squarely at middle Australia while looking after people who are going to miss out and not get anything at all, which is those under $45,000. This is good economic policy. It's based upon the pressures which are on. And what we've seen is a series of interest rate increases. We've seen inflation uh, be, be far greater Globally, this is a global phenomenon, not just here in Australia. In places like the UK, it hit double digits. So what we are doing is very clearly uh, 
doing uh, measures that we said we would do, like cheaper childcare, we've done fee-free TAFE, we've done these measures, but we also have responded just as we had to respond in a way that wasn't anticipated with the energy price relief plan. Uh, no one thought that a government would come to office and have price caps on coal and gas, but that's what we did because we responded to what was necessary. Okay. So this isn't an easy decision, but it is the right decision that is done for the right reasons. Well, can I add to that and ask you, if you're saying the circumstances have changed and that's why we've had to shift here, we've had to pivot, it would be irresponsible not to change policy. It's been a year since your government cut rebated psych sessions from 20 to 10. We're being flooded with messages from young Australians telling us about the devastating impact that's had on their lives. Some are saying they're going without mental health support altogether. If so many people are saying that's not working, is it time to revisit that decision? If you actually look at the figures uh, from uh, the, Dep the Federal Department of Health, if you follow it, what you will see is that what was happening is that, yes, people were getting more sessions, but a whole lot of people were getting zero sessions, weren't able to get any assistance at all. So shouldn't we be is, finding a way to make why, it more equitable well, well, for you, everyone? You, you, you actually, that is precisely what we have done. Uh, what you can't do is overnight uh, train professionals to provide these services. And the truth is that a whole lot of people particularly outside of the inner suburbs of our cities were missing out on any support. They weren't able to get in, which is why the government responded uh, by simply when uh, this was a temporary measure, of course, during COVID, yes. uh, which was increased, like a whole range of other measures but that Prime were Minister, short term during COVID. We've spoken to experts who've said the answer here is not to cut the amount of sessions. Like, sure, you might have to tweak the plan a little, but people are going without. Like, some people don't have mental health support, young people, and they're struggling. That's right. And they weren't getting it before because they couldn't get into sessions. Well, that's not what that everyone's was, telling us. Well, 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 if you have Mark Butler on, uh, our health minister, and he will give a series of uh, figures that were showing uh, what was happening with the advice that came through to government. Well, look, we are planning to have the health minister on very soon, maybe even this week. So we'll be able to put those questions to him. We have a question, Prime Minister, from Maddie, who's messaged in. He wants to know what you're doing about other specific things affecting young people. He says, we're all struggling under student debt, rent, housing generally. Are you worried many young Australians are going to abandon your party if you don't offer them direct support? And he's talking about things like hex indexation, about uh, rent just skyrocketing. Is there going to be any relief directly for young people on those issues? Well, we have directly in the last budget increased Commonwealth rent assistance. We increased Austate and AB study by $40. Uh, these changes uh, helped around about 318,000 young people under the age of 25. Those measures that we put in place in our last budget, which was a substantial increase. In addition to that, the, the biggest beneficiaries, there's 90% of women benefit from these tax changes that we're proposing, but 98% of young people will benefit, will get a bigger tax cut. So for people who are working part-time, who 
who don't get up to $45,000 a year, they were going to get nothing. Now they're going to get a tax cut for people working all the way up to $73,000, which is the average wage in Australia, which many young people uh, are on around about that figure. They will get double the tax cut that they were going to get. Prime Minister, this is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the PM, Anthony Albanese, who is our first guest on Hack in 2024. Prime Minister, Australia, the US, some other countries have paused funding of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. It's known as UNRWA. And that's while investigations are underway into some employees taking part in the Hamas attacks in Israel. Now, the United Nations is calling on Australia to reverse the decision to resume the funding. Is the government going to do that? Well, we want the funding to resume, but there's a pause on while this investigation takes place. Uh, The foreign minister is talking with the United Nations. We want to make sure that protections are put in place uh, to ensure that the money that Australia is giving goes to uh, the right purpose. Uh, we know that this is unfortunate. UNRWA uh, do good work overwhelmingly. Well, but this, this, this is of real concern. Uh, the government has responded to this along with the governments of Canada and the United Kingdom and the United States but and I wonder, other like-minded countries. I wonder if you think the government response has been appropriate if it's not gone too far because you've got the former NZ Prime Minister Helen Clark saying this decision is catastrophic. It seems like harsh collective punishment of the Gazan people. A quarter of Gaza's population is facing starvation right now. This is a huge lifeline for many. Has Australia gone too far? And my government has increased funding uh, for the occupied Palestinian territories. We did that when we came uh, to office, uh, doubled funding uh, there of support and aid. We're providing funding through other agencies as well, not just through UNWA, because we believe this is very important that the humanitarian assistance gets to people uh, who need it, uh, when they need it, and we know that they need it now. Uh, We are very conscious of the pressures which are on but the investigation that will take place uh, quickly, uh, we want to see uh, the these issues uh, sorted out, but it is appropriate that a pause take place given the revelations which have uh, appeared in recent days. PM, Nadia has hit us up on Instagram and she said this. She says, you used to be a vocal supporter of the Palestinian liberation movement. There's footage of you at a pro-Palestine rally earlier in your career. A lot of young Australians are interested in this and maybe they're going to the rallies as well on weekends. So people are asking us, has anything changed? Has your position changed in relation to this issue? And if not, why aren't you as vocal about it? We have been very vocal. We have voted for for a humanitarian ceasefire in the United Nations. We have supported a two-state solution. We reversed the decision of the former government uh, to uh, move the Australian embassy and to change uh, the designation of uh, the capital of, uh, of Israel. We have provided additional funding uh, for Uh, humanitarian support in the occupied Palestinian territories and we have uh, changed the voting pattern Uh, but we also very clearly and unequivocally 
oppose the actions that occurred on October 7, which were a terrorist act by Hamas against innocent young people by and large attending a music festival who were slaughtered, many of whom were also captured and kept as hostages and remain as such. We want those hostages to be released. We want there to be a humanitarian ceasefire and we want for there to be a political solution which requires a two-state solution so that both Israelis and Palestinians can live in peace and security. And the other thing that we have done consistently, and it is what we need to do, you need to be consistent, we have uh, declared our, our opposition to the loss of any innocent life, whether it be Israeli or Palestinian. That's my government's position, right. and, and that is something as well that we declared, uh, not just in the national parliament, but in a joint statement with Canada and right. New Zealand. Prime Minister Anthony Three Albanese. Five countries. Prime Minister, we're going to have to leave it there. We've run out of time, but we do appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you very much for being our first guest on Hack. Thank you very much, Dave. Have a great day. Hack. Make no mistake, this will have the most appalling impact on Triple J. Yeah, we're going to stay with Gaza now because, as you'd know, the war there is raging on and there's no real end in sight. Over the weekend, there were some developments. The United Nations top court gave a ruling. It issued provisional measures to Israel as it looks into allegations of genocide. And also, there are the claims that UN workers were involved in the October 7 attacks in Israel. We're going to have an international court expert on to discuss that soon. But first, here's Joe Lauder to bring you up to speed. There is the familiar buzz of Israeli drones above the second biggest city in the Strip, Han Yunus. As the Israeli military continues its campaign against Hamas, it says it's also focused on finding the hostages. It's been nearly four months since the war in Gaza started and an end to the fighting is still a while away. The court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention. On Friday, the International Court of Justice handed down an interim ruling in the case against Israel. South Africa has accused Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza, which Israel denies. This ruling isn't the final verdict in the case because that's probably going to take years. But in the meantime, South Africa wanted an interim ruling to stop the fighting. The ICJ has ruled that Israel must do everything in its power to prevent acts of genocide in Gaza. The ICJ judge called the situation there catastrophic. Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention. It's significant, but the court stopped short of ordering a full ceasefire. South Africa's foreign minister says it's still a win. Our core purpose was really that it is vital to highlight the plight of the innocent in Palestine. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has called the accusations of genocide false and outrageous. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state. In Gaza right now, there's disappointment about the ruling. We felt betrayed because there is no ceasefire or even a truce, which could have made the situation more bearable for us. 
People are in tents and displaced, including children. The situation is very dire. Even though the ICJ didn't order a stop to the fighting, there are negotiations happening for another temporary ceasefire and hostage deal. The latest discussions are apparently for a two-month ceasefire and the release of two groups of hostages in that time. But Israel's reportedly refusing a permanent ceasefire. Israeli officials say 1,200 people were killed by Hamas on October 7 and 250 people were taken as hostages into Gaza. Half were released last year during the last ceasefire, but 130 hostages are still being held. Some of their family members have been protesting in the Israeli parliament, begging the politicians to focus on bringing their loved ones home. The daily struggle for food and the need for life-saving medical supplies grow. More than 26,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the start of the war, according to local health authorities. And A-groups say the humanitarian situation is getting worse. This doctor's been documenting on Instagram the situation at NASA Hospital. Uh, we received more than 320 patients within two days. All the time, all over around the hospital, there are bombing, gunshot sounds, and it is not safe to go outside of the hospital. Meanwhile, the UN's own Palestinian Refugee Agency is in the headlines itself at the moment. The UN Relief and Works Agency, known as UNRWA, looks after aid, development and education in Gaza, and it has 13,000 workers. Israel has accused a dozen of its workers of being involved in the Hamas October 7 terrorist attack. UNRWA has already suspended the 12 workers who were thought to have been involved in this. In response, over 10 countries, including the US and Australia, have suspended aid funding to UNRWA. The agency's former spokesperson, Chris Guinness, called the reaction disproportionate. Why are you punishing the most desperate, the most needy people, possibly in the Middle East, Middle East today, people who are underneath these £2,000 bombs? Why is Australia punishing those? And I mean, there are plenty of good people of conscience in Australia, and I think they should be asking their government this morning why. All throughout this war, the big fear has been that it's going to explode beyond Gaza, Israel and the West Bank. And right now, that worry is intensifying. The US and its allies have already been retaliating against attacks by a group of rebels from Yemen, the Houthis, on ships in the Red Sea. They're this militia group that's backed by Iran. And yesterday, a drone strike hit a US base in Jordan and killed three American troops and injured 34 others. This is the first time US troops have been killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since the beginning of the war in Gaza, October 7th. The US President Joe Biden has blamed Iran-backed militants and said they will hold those responsible to account. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. I want to get into this a bit more now. And with us, we've got Juliet McIntyre from the University of South Australia. She specialises in international court proceedings. G'day, Juliet. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Can you explain how big of a deal this interim judgment at the International Court of Justice is? Like, will it actually stop things from getting worse? Yeah, look, it's it's a pretty big deal, um, but whether it will stop things from getting worse, that's almost a separate question. So it's a big deal because what's happened is the court has found that there's a plausible risk of genocide occurring in Gaza or possibly genocidal incitement or failure to prevent genocide. It didn't really specify, but one of those, you know, it's it's a serious risk, the court has said. 
and they've described the situation as catastrophic. And so they've stepped in to make this order to essentially protect people on the ground as much as humanly possible. But whether it's going to be effective, well, that's a question because, um, of course, Israel will have to comply with this order. There are mechanisms that exist for uh, enforcement, but in this case, they may not be effective. So what we hope is that um, we will see an increase in aid reaching into Gaza and so on, and then the court will be able to, down the track, uh, reach a final determination about this question of whether or not there is genocide in fact occurring. Yeah, I wanted to ask how binding these conditions are and just expand on that a little. A little, Like, does Israel have to follow them? Yes, so they are absolutely binding. There's no question about that, just like any domestic court proceeding is binding. Um, but what happens here is that if a state chooses to defy the court, well, we need to use political pressure, essentially, to try and convince them to do what the court has ordered them to do. Because, of course, there's no international police force that we can call on to arrest a state. That's not going to work. So uh, usually we would look to the UN Security Council who can uh, enforce judgments by using sanctions to, to force compliance. Of course, here the problem is that the US has a veto on the UN Security Council and has traditionally always used that veto uh, in favour of Israel. So it looks like that is a bit of a non-starter. Was it a surprise that the court didn't order a ceasefire or do something really dramatic like that? Look, it wasn't all that surprising, although I know that a lot of advocates were hoping for it. But realistically, there's two problems with ordering a ceasefire. The first is that the court doesn't necessarily have the power or the, that is the jurisdiction to order a ceasefire because this claim is only about whether or not Israel is committing genocide. It's not about the legality of the military action as a whole. The second problem is that the other party to the military conflict is Hamas and Hamas isn't a state. Hamas cannot appear before the court. So the court couldn't possibly order Hamas to um, cease its hostilities as well. So it's a little bit one-sided to order a ceasefire when you can only compel one side of and, the conflict. And just finally, Juliet, like how long will these proceedings take? Like how long can we expect this to go on for? Yeah, look, this is one of the reasons that I think the court stepped in here to make these emergency measures because it can take years for ICJ proceedings to reach their conclusion, especially if um, a defendant state like Israel chooses to object to the court's jurisdiction. There can be many, many uh, rounds of hearings and lots of argument to be had. So here what the court's done is say we don't want things to, on the ground to get any worse um, as we go through this slightly cumbersome procedure, procedure of getting to a decision on the merits. So it will be some time, a good few years, before we, we reach a final conclusion. Well, we do appreciate you breaking all that down. Thank you very much, Juliet McIntyre. Appreciate you coming on Hack. Thank you so much for having me. Hack on Triple J. That was Juliet McIntyre from the University of South Australia unpacking some of the, you know, situation with that big court ruling, the interim measures that we heard about over the weekend. It's a story we're going to be hearing a lot more about over this year. Gaza is not going anywhere, so we'll make sure we keep you informed. Also, a lot of messages have come through from the Hack audience, their response to the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's interview. I'm sure we'll be talking to him again as well. But that is all for this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. I'll catch you then. See ya. Hack. Hack.